Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Randy Mercer, VP of Global Products at One World Sync. Randy will be joining us to discuss multiple things as we look ahead to the first quarter of 2023, but we'll talk primarily about their consumer product content benchmark study, as well as returns and how you can prevent returns with good item content to begin with. In news, we'll bypass Lululemon's fantastic quarter to talk about Chewy's profitable third quarter, and we will look ahead to returns again as some retailers are beginning to charge for their online returns, and we'll see how customers react to that. A quick reminder, you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter, where Layton is putting up relevant retail content each week. And speaking of Layton, helping out behind the scenes as always, he wanted to discuss Lululemon's fantastic quarter, but ultimately Chewy's profit in their own third quarter leads our news segment. This is to take nothing away from Lululemon, who enjoyed comp sales growth of a whopping 22%. In-store growth for them was 14% direct-to-consumer growth, an eye-popping 31% up year over year. Certainly worth watching where the sector goes as a whole, both in terms of premium athletic gear retailers and in terms of the athletic adjacent retail industry as a whole. Third-party data, you know, we've talked about it recently on the show, but it indicates people continuing to spend money on gym memberships and other athletic gear despite inflationary impacts. And one has to think the future is bright for the likes of Lululemon and REI, who both generally serve those higher income consumers where again third party data suggests there may be less impacted by inflation and recent earnings have been strong for the likes of Dicks and Academy as well so definitely this particular sector worth talking about but as much as both of us love talking about athletic and outdoors retail again Chewy's third straight profitable quarter is definitely worth diving into. Now, Chewy was expected to post a loss of $0.08 per share in the third quarter by analysts, but instead posted a $0.01 per share profit. For reference, as recently as the fourth quarter of 2021, Chewy was missing analyst expectations on the regular, and they were posting barely decent-sized losses per share. Now, that's turned around with earnings of $0.04 and $0.05 per share, respectively, in the first and second quarters of this year leading up to yet another analyst beat and yet another profit posted in this third quarter. Chewy's net sales improved 14.5% versus their third quarter last year, and their net sales now sat at $2.53 billion for the third quarter. Now, a lot of people figured upon sales gains. We see continued spend in the pet category throughout the United States, But it's Chewy's gross margin improvement that's been the story over the past two quarters, and it was no different in this third quarter. Gross margin rose to 28.4% of sales. That's a 200 basis point increase year over year. That gross margin figure, by the way, that 28.4%, that set a quarterly record for them. So basically making more money on what they sell than ever. Their EBITDA also took a massive jump. It was just $6 million in last year's third quarter, $70.4 million in this 
third quarter. So when I say massive jump, you're looking at a over 1,000% increase there. Overall, the story told of their third quarter by management is one of quick scaling. For brick-and-mortar retailers, increasing sales like this, if you were to increase sales by 14% year-over-year, that often means increasing leverage for things such as rental costs of their locations and staffing of their locations. But Chewy really isn't in a position to benefit as much from leverage, although they did from a certain kind of leverage, which we'll talk about later. But they have to find ways to scale quickly and scale up to fulfill increases in sales while also kind of finding ways to boost margins, which have suffered for most of their existence as a standalone company. The tale we were always told of Chewy was, hey, their sales are increasing. Eventually, though, they have to figure out a way to be profitable. And they've done that in their last three quarters. And they have scaled quickly, at least according to management. CEO Sumit Singh credited his group for their ability to, and I quote, get big fast and get fit fast. Now, as far as beyond those leadership platitudes where they actually saw those tangible sales benefits, the general comp increases for them ranged across different categories. First, on a macro level, they saw auto ship customer sales grow 19% year over year, which if you do the math, obviously outpaces sales growth of single purchase items there or their hard goods by a healthy margin. This drove their sales increases, and it now means that auto ship sales for Chewy, they account for 73.3% of their net sales, which is music to management's ears. Really, that would be music to any retailer's ears. Those auto ship programs, pretty much automatic money for retailers and their revenue that, while you don't want to put it in the bank quarters in advance, you know that it is relatively static revenue and it's less volatile quarter to quarter than some of those one-time purchases are. And categorically, it was once again non-discretionary items leading the way. Non-discretionary makes up, of course, the lion's share of their auto ship sales. By non-discretionary, we're talking about things like food, things like pet health care, and sales increases in food and health care led to non-discretionary purchases making up a whopping 83% of Chewy's net sales in the quarter, which once again is a year-over-year increase from some of the durable goods that they were selling last year. Hard goods did step down year-over-year, just as they did in the second quarter. A bit of sequential improvement there, but still they were down in aggregate 5% on a year-over-year basis. Regarding food and non-discretionary, they said in-stock levels were much better this year versus last year, and in-stocks were in the right fulfillment centers, which resulted in a benefit for margins. As far as hard goods were concerned, they feel like this is the one category that customers have really cut back on with the impact of pocketbook tightening. They're not necessarily seeing trades down in terms of food, in terms of pet health care. But in terms of those hard goods, maybe a few things like toys, for example, they're seeing a bit of a step back. Maybe pet parents are making those things linger just a little bit longer. And for Chewy, it wasn't necessarily a case of attracting too many new customers. Sales per active customer rose 14%. And that's roughly when you look at it in lockstep with their overall sales growth numbers. They saw a bit of an addition in terms of customers, but again, very slight compared to their existing active customer base of 20.5 million. Retention has been a huge topic recently for them because 
what they started to see, especially over the first quarters of this year, is pandemic era shoppers starting to look towards other options. But for this third quarter, the rate of retention for them was roughly stable, which is another good sign. As far as other company news that was revealed on the call, Sing was complimentary towards their launch of their first private label pet wellness brand called Vibeful. He noted that non-prescription pet wellness, which is what Vibeful serves in terms of pet multivitamins and the like, that's a $2.4 billion category for the U.S. overall. And they seek to leverage this private label to drive margins a bit. You know, if you're going to sell these products and if you're seeing sales for these type of products, like I said, multivitamins, joint supplements, etc., as people continue to humanify their pets, so to speak, you might as well jump into that with a private label offering. We've talked on the show ad nauseum over the last six months how private labels might well be the story of 2023, just as it felt like they were the story in 2021. Now, other topics for Chewy. It's funny, our interview guest today, Randy Mercer, I mentioned, he's actually going to discuss the increasing trend towards automation in e-commerce and some of what that means on the sales side for retailers. But that trend of automation, that's very evident at Chewy. Around 30% of their Q3 volume shipped through their automated network, and that's a massive jump. Last year's Q3 they only fulfilled about 10% of their overall orders from their automated network. And the reason this was necessary for Chewy is because these automated centers for them carry a fixed operating cost, usually licenses for software and the actual automation systems. So scaling up their use of automation is not only necessary, but it's resulted in a certain amount of leveraging. So I mentioned brick and mortar retailers, maybe when sales go up, they see better leveraging in terms of occupancy costs, in terms of cost of staffing those stores. For Chewy, it's been quite literally leveraging on the cost of some of these automated fulfillment programs. In addition to their automated fulfillment, something else they noted as assisting margins a bit is increased use of planning software on the inventory front. When you rewind to late last year, we talked about Chewy seeing increased fulfillment costs because for them, distance to ship was higher than normal due to supply chain issues. They would see, let's say, dog food maybe sequestered at one fulfillment center across the country from a customer. And they talked about having to ship things on an expedited basis across the country, maybe from a distribution center on the East Coast all the way to a customer on the West Coast because customers were still expecting fulfillment time to be within a couple of days in most cases. They were having to pay their providers an increased cost to get products across the country rather than, say, shipping from their Phoenix distribution center or fulfillment center, if you will. So what they were able to do in this last quarter is use their planning software and, of course, the increased levels of inventory that just exist in the system overall to mitigate some of these increased costs due to these supply chain issues from a year ago. Their average shipping distances for Chewy, those were down 25% year over year. That is a massive decrease. And they credit, again, their improved inventory planning processes, their improved execution regarding putting product in the correct fulfillment centers throughout the country, and, of course, the improved influx of product itself when there were some backlogs on certain products a year ago. With this improvement and through other means like bigger total basket sizes that they saw for their regular customer in this past quarter, 
they, like a lot of other retailers, maybe with the exception of Dollar General, who we talked about this last week, they saw reduced freight costs in the quarter, which of course is going to help that bottom line. One other thing they mentioned, like other retailers are, they're seeing delays in construction projects, especially in terms of their fulfillment center projects, which are, of course, vitally important to them as they continue to attempt to scale up. Now, this is going to reduce the amount of CapEx out the door for them in the fiscal year of 2022, but it will increase it in turn in 2023 as they see these fulfillment centers begin to be built or completed in the next year. So unfortunate for them that they have to wait to scale in those terms, but it seems as though they're handling it pretty well. And unlike Dollar General, who we talked about last week, they're seeing those construction delays, and so that caused increased freight costs. Chewy has been able to mitigate that to some extent. And finally, as we look into the fourth quarter, their expectations are for sales growth in the 10 to 11% range. So a bit down in terms of growth sequentially, where you saw growth this past quarter at 14.5%. But their gains in margin also will be mitigated somewhat in the fourth quarter. And so maybe bad news on that front. Not everything rosy on this call for Chewy. And the reason their gains in margin will fall back is, well, for one, they expect, as everyone does, a highly promotional holiday season. So that's going to erode gains made on their initial pricing in the last year and their initial pricing being slightly higher. That's one of the reasons they've mentioned the increased margins year over year for them. So maybe you see some erosion of that in the fourth quarter and it should affect those hard goods, those durable goods as well, because they said historically the fourth quarter is where you see bounces upward in terms of sales of these hard goods or durable goods. So maybe seeing lesser margins on those as they endeavor to discount to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. For two, they also expect difficulty in achieving some of those same freight and shipping efficiencies as what they saw in the first three quarters of the year. Due to those high volumes you see around November and December and the peak season surcharges that were such a topic of conversation last year at this time, Chewy says, hey, that's going to maybe put us behind the eight ball a little bit in the fourth quarter. So don't expect gross margin to come where it came in in the third quarter. Don't even expect sales increases to come in where they came in in the third quarter looking ahead at this fourth quarter. But overall for Chewy, I think you have to see a positive story here. You know, We were as hard on Chewy on this show as anyone was saying, you know, hey, it's great that you increase sales, but What's to keep this from being another Wayfair? You've got to find a way towards profitability. And they've managed to eventually get on top of things, whether it's through that use of automation, whether it's through use of software to optimize inventory at their different fulfillment centers. But ultimately, I think you have to look at their connection with the customer. When you see the numbers in terms of their auto ship sales, again, 73.3% of their net sales, these are sales that they can routinely count on, and it seems as though they have a very sticky customer that's led them to the ability to know that they can make investments towards certain areas, scale up in certain areas, and be able to get away with it. That, in addition to the increased basket size, has really been the key to Chewy's turnaround over the last three quarters, at least in terms of profitability. They're a retailer that's pretty much always increased in terms of sales, but it's good to see them inch out that profitability, even if we are just talking about one cent per share as we are in the third quarter. 
Well, that'll do it for us in our news segment. Coming up after this break, we'll talk to Randy Mercer. As I mentioned, we'll talk to him a little bit about automation and the trend towards automation and what that means on the sales side for researchers. We'll also talk about some of their own organic research regarding consumer behavior, regarding consumer behavior as it pertains to returns, and how content in digital channels is vitally important to make sure that people don't return things as often as maybe what they have in previous years. Well, we look towards the beginning of 2023. Each year we cover the dynamics of product returns. And it seems, especially with the proliferation of digital purchases during the holiday season, returns and reverse logistics have become an increasing issue for retailers. But rather than just accepting returns as an inevitability or as a cost of doing business, what can retailers do to minimize the effect of returns and cut down on the billions of dollars wrapped up in that inventory coming back? To discuss this issue, we're happy to be joined by Randy Mercer, VP of Global Products at One World Sync. One World Sync is a leading product content platform that not only serves many CPGs throughout the world, but also retailers such as Kroger, Target, and Walmart. Randy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Trent. Happy to be here. Now, I gave a brief introduction, but could you kind of fill in our listeners on what One World Sync does on the day-to-day? Sure. We are a, about a two-decade-old platform that sits between brands and retailers, and the use of our platform is really aimed at giving the brands a very fluid, comprehensive way to share content with retailers that is needed to operate all the sales channels. So that's a brief introduction as far as the company is concerned. I'm curious, what was the driving force behind conducting the research, some of the research that we're going to talk about today in the consumer product content benchmark that you produced? Yeah, the short story is if you look back over the last couple of years with all the crazy things that have happened globally, seeing a lot of very interesting dynamics relative to what retailers are focused on in terms of how they're communicating or, or you know translating their product assortments across their customer bases. So really just interested in what that's netted out to over the last few years in terms of where the focuses are. All right. So talked about the company, talked about the drive for the research. Now let's talk about some of the top headlines that came out of the research. We'll talk about returns here in just a second, but I'm curious what some of the numbers were or what some of the findings were that might have grabbed your attention once you started to get the data back. Yeah. You know, clearly the concept of returns and how those affect everything that's happening from a fulfillment perspective clearly is a long time focus, but it's become more of a focus because of a shift that we hadn't really recognized until we started looking a lot deeper into why this renewed focus on the return subject. And it's because one of the things that we started to notice on the retail side is more of a focus on the automation of everything related to their supply chain. And it's nothing new, but again, it's just this return focus to automation. When retailers really start shifting more into how they blend e-com and the fulfillment of that with their traditional fulfillment methods in brick and mortar, it has just trended them more and more toward just more fully automating their warehouses for starters, but then the automation of just that picking process and how they deliver that. So then when you throw you know returns in on top of that, it just adds an element of disruption to it that we've just recognized folks really starting to return to that. So the net of all of that is a focus on the product content, sure, right? But the product content as it relates to how thoroughly you can automate things is really the net of it. So it's just a nuance to the product content story that 
we knew existed but hadn't realized how much it was apparent as a part of the retailer thinking. We'll talk a little bit more about content as we go on, but also curious, based on the research, what is being returned or which categories are more likely to be returned, and then who among consumers is doing the returning? More important, why are customers returning things? Yeah, you know, I think we recognize it more. If you look at our customer base, I guess I'll start there. If you look at our customer base, very CPG oriented from a retailer perspective. So I don't think those are the categories where you see the most returns because they're not high dollar items. If you get the wrong thing, you kind of live with it and move on. But our customer base has grown a lot over the last couple of years in the consumer electronics and those types of products that are higher dollar, higher end products where if you get the wrong thing, it's not what you want, you're going to return it. So as related to our customer base, that's where I think we recognize most of the activity uh, related to returns. And of course, you mentioned in terms of the product story, product description, I think before we can even talk further about returns, we should really focus on how and why consumers make decisions. And the research found that an overwhelming number of shoppers seek out some form of digital information before purchase, even those that are purchasing in-store. What kind of color can you offer in terms of the importance of complete product information in a digital setting as far as a retailer or even a CPG is concerned? Yeah, you know, it's it's something we all know that's important, right? How thorough the content is and how accurate it is is probably even the bigger thing, right? How accurately, how completely does it depict what the product is, what the product features are, what the consumer is going to get, you know, as an experience, right? So when you think of all of those things, more rich content, AR, just as an example, becoming more and more popular as a way to just project on the consumer, this is what your experience might look like when you get this product. But when you look at the consumer electronics space specifically, or get into white goods as well, you know, these products that you're spending hundreds or thousands of dollars on, the degree to which the consumer expects to be able to see every button, feature, whatever it is about this product is critically important. And so again, just going over the last couple of years where we've just really tried to tighten down on how we provide that type of information, that's a key one. Just every every specific detail about those products is important to the consumer. And if they don't see it, they're either not going to buy it at all or they're going to end up returning it, which is what we're hoping to avoid in the first place. But you know, a second part to that, which is actually part of your previous question that I didn't answer, is in terms of reasoning, when you look at how consumers buy online, you know, they always go online looking for the big thing that they're looking for that day. And one of the ways that a retailer can increase their basket size is by making some suggestions about if you bought this thing, probably going to want these things to go with it. And one of the things that we've recognized is very often that's inaccurate suggestions, meaning that the suggestion being made doesn't really fit with the thing that they bought. And so you're manufacturing returns as a retailer. You're doing it to yourself. So again, something that we focused on more recently is how do we help the retailers do that better? Meaning if you're going to make some suggestions on the checkout page, you might want to make sure that they're accurate. You know, what you're recommending truly does go with that product. So when the consumer gets it, they're very happy with it. They don't return it. And there's a few ways that you can do that. But one of them is with very accurate product information being used as a mechanism to perform the AI that goes into making those suggestions. That's a great, interesting point there in terms of those poor product recommendations, as you say, kind of manufacturing those returns. But you also mentioned something that's very important, which is the consumer expectation. Consumers now expect complete product information. 
How has consumer expectations surrounding product information changed maybe on a bit more of a granular level other than we know they want more information now than maybe what they wanted five years ago? Yeah, you know, that expectation just continues to rise, right? As the experience of the consumer online gets better and better and better, you know, everything they're looking at the next day, they expect to see more or better stuff. But just really granularly, where we see it is a bit of a transition between content that's text in nature, right? These long descriptions and feature value bullet points that are, you know, 50 words long. Consumers don't have a lot of patience relative to spending is a lot of time. They do it but they don't want to read a lot. So we've seen this integration of information that used to be in text form into imagery. So imagery just being probably one of the key things that we could call out in terms of how we've advanced, how we're helping brands get content to the retailers that's really going to sell their products. So when you look at imagery, there's the basic stuff, front, back, side, side, all of that kind of stuff. But then being able to take that imagery and produce more hero-oriented imagery that contains more indicators relative to things that a consumer used to have to read to understand. So calling out key features in that imagery, then take that a little bit further into 360 spins of products on multi-planes that then incorporate those things. And then take that further into hotspots, so interactive imagery, all the way into what I talked about a little bit before, augmented reality, right? That allows you to take what you're seeing on the screen, making a purchasing decision around, and actually place it on your desk or in some situation in which they'll actually use it. So imagery and just the advancements around that, how creative you're getting with that is, you know, clearly something that the consumers are expecting to see these days. So we reference consumer expectations. And I do actually want to take a step back a little bit because one thing we hear pretty often from listeners is they want to hear about the how things happen in today's retail world. So we talk about these product pictures, 360 spins, product descriptions, I was wondering if you could paint a picture, because I know this is something One World Sync deals a lot with, how those descriptions get to the final pages of retailers. Could you walk us through that process a little bit and also walk us through maybe where some pitfalls might occur in that process that might spur on returns? Yeah, man, I wish there was a single answer to that question. And the reality is, is there's not today. When you look at the workflow that occurs with each specific retailer relative to how they acquire that content that lands on the product detail page, and then their backend or their internal workflows relative to how they might review that, approve it, ultimately launch it onto the site. It's a little bit different for all of them. They all have different mechanisms by which they operate those workflows. What we try to do for our brand side customers is to make those as common as possible. So get them as far through the process as we can with a single process operated in our platform so that by the time it lands at the retailer, the brand hasn't really had to do anything different. But the simple reality is when you look at the breadth of content that retailers need, and it ranges from everything, you know, consumer facing, you know, you actually see it on the product detail page to elements of content that are operating behind the scenes to help with the automation of the supply chain and other things. It's a lot of stuff. And so what we, again, what we try to do for our brands is make sure that they don't have to contend with those nuances, the retailer. And when you look at what those nuances are, we've got some retailers that will use, you know, global item alignment processes, meaning these global standards that can be used as a mechanism to drive not only what content is shared, but how it's shared physically. How is it, you know, moved to the retailer all the way to other retailers that have built these proprietary portals where they expect brands to like log in and type stuff in 
two proprietary API mechanisms where the brands can connect to things and send in data. It is a mix and match across the retailer landscape that we try to, again, try to build some commonality around within our platform to ease the work of the brands, but then also just improve the effectiveness and the timeliness. One of the things that we continue to hear from the brands is, I've updated my content in your platform, One World Think, but I'm not yet seeing it on the retailer side. Why is that? And again, it's built in lags in the process of the retailer. Once they get it in their hands, what are they doing to it? So anything that we can do to make sure that that content is absolutely ready to use, and we use that term a lot, content readiness, by the time we get it in the retailer's hands, in concept, it just speeds that process that happens internally, whereby the retailer is looking at it, consuming it, potentially even looking at making some improvements to it. If we can speed that up, it just adds a layer of effectiveness to the brand's work effort that we've seen be very compelling for the brands. That's a lot of great color there, and I think our listeners will be pleased to kind of learn how the sausage is made, so to speak, as far as product descriptions are concerned. Now, pivoting back to returns, I know data from Oracle that recently came out suggests that as many as 70% of consumers have purchased a product specifically with the intent of returning it. Maybe they order two sizes and automatically know that they're going to be returning one. What can retailers do to help maybe reduce this number? You know, again, I guess it goes back to how comprehensively are you depicting these items online, right? So consumers are going to, you know, there's some types of products where I can understand the rationale of the consumer to that. But again, the more confident that they are that, you know, what they see online is exactly what they're going to get and it's going to meet their expectation, the less likely they are that they're going to use tactics like that, you know, ordering two, knowing they're going to return one to just get the right thing in their hands. So, you know, we just continue to see it. The more content you put online, the longer you engage the consumer in that content, the more comfortable they're going to be with a buying decision and the more likely they're going to be to make that actual conversion in the first place. So it just goes back to very accurate, very comprehensive content. All right. And as we wrap it up here, you know, kind of looking ahead over the next two to three years, where do you feel as though maybe product content is heading in the retail space? And what do you think is kind of the next frontier in terms of providing that product content and also what consumers might be demanding in the future as far as product content is concerned? Yeah, it doesn't sound as exciting as maybe you'd want the answer to be. But what we continue to see from our retailers is this really energized focus on automation, automation of everything, right? So when you think of, you know, getting stuff off of a truck into a warehouse and getting it slotted correctly and the degree to which they can automate that, you know, clearly, I mean, it's pretty obvious what the benefits of that are going to be. But what we've seen is, is when you get past that, that's not a new thing. It's been going on for years. But what is becoming more new is how do you automate the fulfillment process, right? And again, in some, you know, landscapes, not completely new. But when you start blending the in-store experience with the online experience, with, you know, curbside pickup and those kinds of things and how you automate that, we've got retailers that are really intensely focused on that and advancing that. So when you look at the content that drives that, it is a blend of what the consumer sees online and how they're making those buying decisions and making sure that you're trending the consumers in the way that you want them to in terms of what they're buying and what they're making the conversion decision on. And then you blend with that the back-end data and content that allows you to really automate that. So the consumer experience is not only the online experience, right? 
of course, that's important. But the fulfillment experience has become such an important part of that, where folks aren't going into the store and doing it themselves. They're expecting this just to magically show up at the curb in five minutes after they've ordered it online. How does the retailer deliver on that? And that's just the next big thing that the retailers have to contend with. It's all just, it's related to the content, right? Driving the conversion in the right direction and then making sure that I can fulfill on that as quickly as possible. That's where we just see this continued focus and what I think is going to be our focus for the next several years is helping the retailers perfect that level of fulfillment that the consumers have come to expect. When it really has come such a long way over the last five to 10 years, and not only terms of how those product descriptions appear on the websites, but also what consumers expect, as you've talked about. Well, Randy, once again, I thank you for your time. Thanks for painting a great picture of not only this process, but how it can lead to reduced returns or greater returns if you don't do it right. And thanks for taking the time to join us today. Of course. I always love talking about this stuff. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, as we just spent quite a while talking to Randy about returns, about the importance of good product content in a digital format, the Washington Post came out with an article this week discussing several major retailers actually instituting restock costs or restock fees for returns through their e-commerce platforms. Now, again, this is our looking head segment. And I think this is an interesting article because most of these brands that are coming up, you're looking at H&M, Abercrombie & Fitch, J. Crew, among others that are cited by the article. They're charging anywhere between 4 to $7.50. And that's important because we know that the percent of people that return products when they purchase it online, very, very high, as Randy alluded to. Some data out there, including data by Parcel Lab, Parcel Lab, a company that we've had represented on the show in the past. This number was cited by the Post, but 47% of online purchases have been returned this year, according to that data. Globally, you see the number of returns up in the teens in terms of percentage. And we also discussed it with Randy just a moment ago. We're seeing an increase of customers purchasing items with the intent to return. Something like, for example, purchasing multiple sizes of a particular product to see which one fits better and then returning the one that doesn't quite fit as well. And I think that's something that's going to be kind of endemic to the online shopping environment, especially when it comes to apparel. And look, as someone that wears absolutely outlandish sizes in certain things, I completely understand that desire on the part of consumers. But the real question is, as we look ahead towards especially e-commerce apparel sales in this fourth quarter, and apparel is a category where some analysts say it's going to be up a little bit. Some analysts say it's going to be down a little bit in the current environment. But the bottom line is customers, just as they expect fast and free shipping, they expect fast and free return capability as well. And in fact, other numbers cited in the Washington Post article said as many as 63% of customers out there said free return shipping is their top consideration when making an online purchase. So if you're one of these retailers that's planning on charging a restock fee 
Are you making that upfront for consumers such that they know that a restock fee will be charged before they make the initial order? If not, that's going to cause some friction on the back end of things. Are you making it known very, very clearly on the website? Well, that might cause friction on the front end of things and it might decrease your overall conversion rates. So I'm really anxious to see how retailers approach this and how it affects sales for retailers because you compare and contrast these retailers with retailers like, for example, Kohl's. And we've talked about Kohl's. They've struggled recently a little bit in terms of sales in recent quarters versus maybe expectations. But Kohl's also has one of the most seamless return processes out there. So Will customers maybe forego these platforms that have return or restock fees in favor of other platforms that offer free returns just like some are offering free shipping? Returns are a big subject this time of year, and so I think it's going to be important to see where these companies' e-commerce sales come in at as we get those numbers January and February of next year. Now, coming up on next week's episode, we'll be joined by Christina Rogers, who is the EY Global Consumer Leader. We'll talk to Christina about their 11th edition of the Future Consumer Index. We'll talk to Christina a little bit about returns, but also about the forecast as far as what the consumer is going to look like in 2023 and specifically what retailers can learn from this Future Consumer Index, which surveys a vast amount of people. It's a very large sample size. And as we close out this week's episode, I just want to note that for the first time ever, I was made aware an Aldi series of commercials with Kevin the Carrot. It's an anthropomorphic carrot there. And I feel as though, this is just an aside, but I feel as though it's a failure of the listeners of this podcast and what few friends I have to let me know that this ad campaign exists. I spent probably an hour over this past weekend just watching Kevin, the carrot commercials, their carrot commercial for this year features a home alone type situation. And I think one of our favorite retail analysts out there, Neil Saunders, put it best when he said, let's be honest, what's not to like about anthropomorphic carrots as it pertains to this commercial. So shout out to Neil. We appreciate his take on the commercial. But if you haven't seen it, highly recommend the Aldi Christmas commercial featuring Kevin, the carrot and the rest of his family for this year. Honestly, I I recommend all of the Kevin the Carrot commercials, but I also like anthropomorphic vegetables. That's just something about me. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode. If you haven't already turned the podcast off, we're looking forward to next week and I hope everyone has a great next seven days. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.